Hi, friends. Welcome to another episode of That Sounds Fun. I'm your host, Annie F. Downs, and I'm really happy to be here with you today. We have got a great show in store with one of our favorite guys. But before we jump into today's conversation, I want to take a moment to tell you about one of our amazing partners, BetterHelp. I don't know about you, but when I have major decisions to make or things going on that are causing me to feel stuck, I find it so helpful to have someone qualified to process with. If that's you too, just like so many of our friends who found them helpful, BetterHelp is here for you. BetterHelp will evaluate what you've got going on and match you with your own licensed professional therapist who you can connect with in a convenient, safe, and private online environment. You can send your therapist a message anytime and you'll receive timely and thoughtful responses. You can start communicating within 24 hours and you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions too. They really make it so convenient, y'all. BetterHelp wants you to have a great therapeutic match with your counselor, so they make it easy and free to change if you need to. And they offer services worldwide with licensed professional therapists who specialize in a wide variety of disciplines like depression or family troubles, stress or grief or anxiety or self-esteem and more. I think it's so important that they have such varied expertise because it means they can connect with you right where you are with the help that you need for what you're walking through. This is not self-help and it's not a crisis hotline. It's convenient, professional, affordable counseling that is always confidential. I want you to start living a healthier life today, friends. So as one of our friends, you get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash that sounds fun. Join over a million people and so many of our friends who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash that sounds fun. Today on the show, I get to talk to my friend and often quoted Sabbath guy, John Mark Comer. John Mark is the founding pastor of Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, the director and teacher of Practicing the Way, and the best-selling author of Ruthless Elimination of Hurry and four previous books. You know how much I love all of them, particularly Garden City. A lot of his writing is focused on the work of spiritual formation in post-Christian culture. He's such a valuable and trusted voice in my life, and here on the pod, you'll remember Remember him from episode 31 and episode 180 and the January 2018 Rhythms episode about Sabbath. His new book, Live No Lies, Recognize and Resist the Three Enemies That Sabotage Your Peace, is such an important message for us right now, y'all. He's going to teach us and pastor us through what those enemies look like in our lives and how we can fight against them. We talk a lot about prayer. We talk about fasting. You guys, I, I just... Love this dude. I'm so grateful to have him back. I can't wait for y'all to read his new book. And here's my conversation with John Mark Comer. Welcome back to That Sounds Fun. I think you're one of the most guests who's been on. How many times have you been on now? Like four or five? No, like one, right? No. More than once? Twice, maybe? I think so. <laughs> Maybe there's a Christmas thing. Yeah, it's been Uh-oh, a hit. We're off to a bad start already. Editor, <laughs> edit that out. <laughs> edit um, out that actually, neither of us Annie, know how many times we've done I've this. been on three times, and each time I remember mm. the date. Yeah, <laughs> thank you so much, as do I, clearly. I'm like, have you been on like five so times? So what's happened? Like, since the last time I was on, you've had like Matthew McConaughey, who, by the way, could not put his memoir down. Then my high school boy read it. Then my wife read it, like went through our house in like three days. Yeah. And you've had like... Who who else? It was like um, Jennifer, Jennifer Garner. Gardner. I mean, what in the yeah. world? Why do you have me on? Goodness, <laughs> things are moving up. <laughs> You're in the, the that highlight. Sounds fun world. You're the highlight. No, no, no. Isn't it fun though? I mean, it, I'm, I'm like I'm, the spiritual discipline of hiddenness for you yeah. or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, you're killing me! Oh, that's so sweet that Annie, Annie's <laughs> just blessing this 
random person. Uh, yeah, I'm sure that's how everyone feels, John Bart. Yeah, right. I mean, we are, you know that everybody listening, our crowd is such big fans of the work you do. So don't even act like you're more interesting to them than Matthew McConaughey. Very similar haircuts. Stop, stop. Very, yeah, he's almost as good looking as me too. And uh, as talented and creative and. <laughs> All those things. Rich. <laughs> All the things. Yeah. 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 You know, generous, you know, all the things. Right, right, right. Okay. So catch everybody up on Bridgetown news. You've got your big transition with Bridgetown stuff, huh? Yeah. So uh, just as we are recording this a week ago today, I finished an 18 year run as the pastor for teaching and vision at our church. We planted the church 18 years ago with a number of other beautiful people, and we're there uh, almost two decades, and uh, kind of passed the baton to a dear friend of mine, Tyler Staten, who, do you know Tyler? I, ish. I know of him, and I'm, I'm a big stalker. I think highly of him. Yeah. He's extraordinary from Brooklyn, New York. He was, you know, John Tyson. He was kind of John Tyson's protege. He was actually, fun fact, in, he, he was in Nashville as a kid. Uh-huh. And was in John Tyson's middle school group when John Tyson was a middle school pastor in his like early 20s when he just moved here from Australia. And he basically, his his faith came alive when John Tyson challenged him in sixth grade. He wasn't, he got kind of almost a Christian, Tyler was. He challenged him to prayer walk his middle school somewhere here in Nashville every single morning for seven days straight with his yearbook and pray for every single one of his students. And he started leading a Bible study for 80 kids. So that was like his introduction to following Jesus and right into, you know, some kind of spiritual leadership. So pass the baton to him. He is extraordinary. will lead the church better than I ever did. And uh, I am releasing a book and then I'm going on a long sabbatical where I will be MIA from all things internet and anywhere else for a very long time. And then God willing, going to come back and start this new nonprofit called Practicing the Way. And I want to devote kind of the next chunk of my life to creating discipleship and formation resources for the church. 18 years. I mean, that you literally raised a church. That's an adult. Well, I'm one of many, but yeah, it does feel a little bit like, I, I know there's, this is not a theological statement because if it was, it would be heresy. So disclaimer for the Christians listening. Great. Uh, but it feels like what I imagine it will feel like to give my daughter away in marriage. Wow. Just really? meaning I'm, I know that the church is not mine and she's the bride of Christ, not, you know, me, but I, it feels what I imagine that will feel like where you just invest your blood, sweat, and tears uh, over, you know, 18 years of your life. You just give everything you have into the growth of this person that has its own agency and you're not in control of, but you know, you are at some point responsible for, um, and then you release them into the wild and they're not yours and they go off to whatever is next and you are no longer responsible for them, thank God, but you are always responsible to them. So uh, that that's the best kind of, um, I, I've not been down, my daughter's not that old yet, but I imagine that's what it feels like. One of the things we're talking about a lot around here is the yes and of life, like that we can hold joy and sadness at the same time, that we can hold frustration and gifts at the same time. So what are the yes ands of moving on from Bridgetown? 
Oh, I mean, so many emotions. Uh, I am feeling all of the feels right now. People keep asking me, how, how are you feeling? And it's a hard question to answer because there's not a short one, you know? And so it's the, yes, um, I feel a high level of humble confidence that I am walking in God's will over my life and our church as best as myself and our community can discern, no neuroticism, no second thoughts. And at the same time, I feel, and full of hope and joy over Bridgetown's future, love for Tyler, and I feel grief, and I feel exhausted, and I feel uncertain over my own future, and I, I'm more aware now of just how much of my identity and sense of self and of security was based in my job. And now as that's kind of being taken away, and not like I'm unemployed, like we have a, a, a generic plan, but there's still a lot of questions about what exactly our post-sabbatical life will look like. Um, feeling all of that uncertainty over the future. And I'm like a, I'm like the opposite of a, like a high P on the Myers-Briggs. I am a J, I am a planner, obsessive, compulsive, long range thinker. Like, you know, I make all the plans for all the things. So even though we have a, a generic kind of plan for the next season of our life, there's still a lot of kind of discernment process we have to go through with our community over the next kind of season of sabbatical to really get clear on what to give ourselves to and exactly how and when and where, all that kind of stuff. So that uncertainty is really hard, I think for anybody, but especially for my personality to live with. So I've been thinking a lot about the mystic idea of holy uncertainty and uh, just trying to let God kind of grow that muscle in my soul. I feel that a lot as well with my fall changing so drastically yes. and yes. we're having some turnover on staff and it, it is all these things where I said to the Lord, in June, I understood everything. In October, I understand nothing. Yeah. And so that holy uncertainty, I've never heard that unless you've said that to me before, but it feels very important. Will you talk about like, when I think about that, when I think about the muscle of faith, when I think about the muscle of prayer, like, will you talk about the importance of investing and building up some of those muscles in ourselves spiritually? Well, one way to think about it, there are all different ways to frame the human condition what's broke in us and what's beautiful in us. Of course, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are what I find to be the most compelling way to do that. But one way to frame it is that the root of the human problem is self-will and our kind of grasping for control. And, you know, I read this great study a couple of years ago by a secular psychologist that said the average Western person has 15% of the control over their life that they think they do. Jeez. <laughs> Which is why we're all so neurotic, you know? <laughs> so, uh, you know, Bless. we think we're in control of our, uh, of our career, of our health, of our fall schedule and our tour, of our book, of our ministry, of our family, of our marriage, of our love life, of our prayer life, of our relationship with God. And there's just enough truth in that to keep us believing the illusion. We have some control. We have a modicum of kind of control, you know, but most of our life is actually outside of our control. And the Western world with its, you know, Amazon.com and its, you know, 
safe kind of suburban life and it's, you know, airbags in the SUVs just can lull us into believing this illusion about reality that we're masters of the universe. We're a captain of our own destiny. We're in control of our life. And the reality is we're in control of a little bit of our life, but a ton of our life is out of our control. That's where COVID, though very few of us had the maturity to receive it, myself included, was this extraordinary invitation from God to face reality. Because for the first time, Western people were experiencing what most of the world is used to. This high kind of, you know, like we all started to plan. Remember when COVID first hit and we were all trying to plan out our year and it was just like an exercise in futility? Because planning yes. is a function of, of predictability. You can't plan if you can't predict. And so how do you plan for your fall schedule if you can't predict Delta or Lambda or whatever the next one is, you know? <laughs> so all of the sudden now there's like the, an uncertain future, which means we can't plan, which means all of a sudden we actually feel anxiety and bewilderment and confusion and not at peace because we don't feel in control. But the reality is we weren't in control. That was an illusion. And control is at the root of so much that's wrong in our spiritual formation and in our interpersonal relationships because it's antithetical in love. As long And the logic there is, as long as I need my life to go a certain way in order for me to feel safe and happy, I will, no matter my best intentions, manipulate, bully, and harm other people to get what I feel that I need to be safe. Wow. And so control is deeply damaging to relationships and to our formation. So one way of thinking about the spiritual journey in the way of Jesus is growing in our capacity to trust in God as we release our dependence upon the illusion of control. And uh, a great way to grow that muscle is just by praying through COVID-19 or a transition <laughs> from your church or whatever it is. <laughs> or lose the things you thought you had control over and suddenly you get to stretch that muscle. Yeah, that's the kind of muscle you can't, um, you can't podcast your way toward, can't read a book toward, and obviously we're for both of those things. But, you know, Westerners, we just want to, like, think our way into maturity. And there's obviously a, a key place. I'm a teacher. I have a high value for preaching, teaching, and writing books, and reading books, and we're on a podcast. I'm for all of that. But you can't think or read or lecture or podcast your way into maturity. That can give you a roadmap, but you still have to walk the journey with your body. And a roadmap is beyond helpful. Like, I'm driving around Nashville right now. And I have my maps because I don't know my way around. You know what I mean? So I'm very grateful for a roadmap. I would be very lost without it. But I still have to get in the car or put it or walk out the door and walk. I have to go somewhere. And, you know, I think it was Charlie Dates in Chicago, who FYI has got to be one of the best preachers in the world right now, who said, you know, we don't think our way into maturity. He was teaching from James 1. We persevere our way into maturity. Wow. So the way you grow faith is by being faithful not necessarily by reading books about faith. You know, that can, that can be a great bolster to keep you faithful with your body. But the way you grow faith is you stay faithful. That feels really helpful because even when you think about your prayer life or your relationship life, you think uh, something that I struggle with in counseling, John Mark, is I think I want to gather up all the tools I need to be healthy in all these relationships but sometimes you have to get in the thing and get your body in the thing and the tool comes. 
Yes. And that's the great threat to uh, whether therapy, which I'm so for, been in it for 10 years, or spiritual formation, which I'm literally giving my life to, to for, as far as work, is there, if again, back to if the root of our problem is human self-will, kind of will turned in on itself, love turned in on itself, then we kind of, we kind of like taint and corrupt and, you know, infect everything that we touch and with self-will. And so often we can bring to our prayer life, bring to our discipleship to Jesus, bring to our therapy self-will, and it just as easily goes from how do I become a person of love in Jesus to how do I get myself looking and feeling better, <laughs> you yes. know? Yes, And it becomes project self, you know, it becomes self-help with a Christian spin. It becomes, you know, these aren't bad things per se, but they're just, they're getting us back to the problem, not to the solution, you know? So that's, that's not an anti-therapy statement anymore that it's an anti-discipleship statement. It's a be aware of the human self, you know? Statement. Yeah. Cause I think it, the thing I think, so I won't speak for all of us. I almost said the thing we think, but I don't know, John Mark, the thing I think is, no, no, I'm sure I think what you think is <laughs> that it is significantly less vulnerable for me to get all the practice in before I'm actually in the thing. So yes. w- to actually show up and to love like Jesus is very risky. But if I can build all these tools in all these ways and read all these books before, then I've actually built up walls that protect me from the vulnerability of actually just loving like Jesus in a way that may cost me. Yeah. Am I reading that correctly? No, I think you are too. And I mean, I just, I think we all feel that if you have any kind of, you know, public, for lack of a better word, role, you know, you feel it even more acute that pressure to perform virtue rather than to grow in virtue, you know? Yeah. And I just feel that tug in my own heart. I want the people listening to the podcast to think that I am such a good person, you know? Sure. And the reality is I'm okay. I got some good, (laughs) yes, and, what was it? Yes, there's some great stuff about me. Not yes, but, we're getting rid of the but. It's yes, and. We're getting rid of the yes, but, yes, and. Yes, I'm a good person. And I am dot, dot, dot. And I won't fill in the blank. Um, but I am my wife. I always say I'm a monster. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I've lived with you me every day. It's not great. It's not great. <laughs> you are the farthest uh, thing from a monster. But man, that's why, you know, it's one of the reasons I read literary fiction at night. It's one of the reasons I, I love to just walk around a city and pay attention. It's one of the reasons I love chatting to people like you. It's just coming to peace with the reality of who we actually are until until we can face M. Scott Peck, who's a, a psychologist dead now that I love, define mental health as dedication to reality at all costs. At all And costs. ironically, accepting how broken you are is actually the first step toward changing because until you accept what's wrong with you, you can't face reality and actually begin to go on the journey toward healing. I think that's one of the things you do so beautifully in your new book, Live No Lies, is is it is such a, I mean, when I read it, John Mark, one of the things I thought is, well, I thought John Mark is not playing. John Mark is not playing. He is here with some things to say. <laughs> he is I not know, messing this is, around. What happened to the Sabbath guy? What yeah, happened what to happened the- to the Sabbath guy who told us like quit hurrying this guy? I mean, but, but I think the reason I tie that to what you were just saying is, Live No Lies is a very reality-based book. 
<laughs> your others have been as well, but you're like, hey, y'all need to see these three places where you are being lied to pretty consistently. Yeah. Why is that the right next thing to write? Why is that what you had to get out of your body? Well, I'm not sure it was the right next thing to write. <laughs> it was. It well, was. Let me confirm. Well, we'll see what happens in the coming weeks and months. Well, yes. Okay. So for those of you who've not read my work, um, I've written a number of books. My last book is kind of the most well-known. It's called The Ruthless and Aged of Hurry. My new one's called Live No Lies. You think it's more better known than Garden City? Hurry? I mean, I guess you actually know numbers, so you probably know, but yeah. Yes, significantly more. Yeah. Oh, great. Yes, which is which is great. My point is, if you happen to read these two books, at first they're like kind of almost jarring in difference. I would imagine, I don't know. Um, you know, but they're they're very different. One is about kind of an hurry is basically it's basically an intro to spiritual formation book that is sneaking in through the Trojan horse of the felt need of hurry um, to to your heart. But really what I'm, my agenda, if there is one, is to open your heart to, to really following Jesus with a serious, intentional, beautiful heart. And my new one, uh, Live No Lies, is basically a tour. It's kind of built around this wireframe of this paradigm from the ancient, kind of from the desert fathers and mothers in the third and fourth century based on their reading of the New Testament and the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. We can talk about this later if you want, um, of what they called the three enemies of the soul, which were which they identified as the world, the flesh, and the devil. And uh, this was a paradigm used by kind of Christian teachers and the saints for well over a thousand years as kind of the dominant paradigm. And they, they thought of the three enemies of the soul almost as like a counter trinity to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that oh, were at wow. war with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and with the kingdom of God and with you and your soul and our society. And they had this whole paradigm of kind of a, a spirituality of struggle that I think we, in my basic case is we've lost that. Most people don't think about it. If you hear the language of the devil, we think of it as like a pre-modern kind of myth, you know, that is like, well, now we know better. We have science. We don't believe in Santa Claus or the devil anymore. The flesh, we scratch our head. It's not even language from our culture anymore. We live in a sensual culture, all about hedonism, all about dopamine and feeling good in the moment rather than becoming a good person over a long period of time. And the world, even for Christians, we don't really call the world the world anymore. We call it the arts and entertainment or politics yes. or economics or systemic injustice. We don't really call it what Jesus calls it, the world, which is this whole thing in the New Testament, major theme in Jesus' teachings and the New Testament writers. So at a surface level, these books are about wildly disparate subject matters. But actually, in my evil genius plan, they are joined at the hip. And that's because yes. my life call, like what I feel put on earth to do, at least for the second half of my life, is all around like formation and discipleship, the healing and the growth and the expansion of the soul into a person who is pervaded by love through union with Jesus. Like that is what I want for my life. And that is what I want to help other people discover in their own life. So that that is like what I, I'm a pastor, but what gets me out of bed in the morning is not putting on Sunday gatherings or organizing church events or even, you know, the very important justice work that we do as a church. These are all great things that I believe in 120%. But what gets me out of bed in the morning is my own pain 
my own like ache to become a person of love and who is formed in the image of Jesus and my desire to see that become normative across the church. So that's what I'm starting this nonprofit for, blah, blah, blah. All that to say, when I think about how do I take somebody on a journey from baptism or saying yes to Jesus to maturity in Jesus over years or decades of time, there are two primary obstacles that I see that keep people from even going on the journey in the first place, ever basically even getting After any, they've said yes. Yes, that keep people from really ever following Jesus in the New Testament sense and ever getting any kind of traction in their formation and growth and maturity. The first one is hurry, busyness. You know, to quote my therapist, people are just too busy to live emotionally healthy and spiritually rich lives. Like people can't become emotionally healthy or spiritually mature because their lifestyle is literally so fast. They will never, they, they literally are moving too fast to actually follow Jesus. They can be a Christian, they can believe in God, they can even go to church, but they're not actually abiding as Jesus said. So that's obstacle number one, that was my last book. Obstacle number two, and that I've just discovered through living and then pastoring in a city like Portland, is people are living with these deeply ingrained, often unconscious, secular assumptions about what is good and what is beautiful and what is true. And if you live, or in very blatant New Testament language, people are living by lies. And if you live by lies about what is good, which is, this is the Genesis story, what is beautiful and what is true. I mean, this is Genesis chapter three, the paradigmatic temptation, meaning like the temptation behind all temptations that however you read Genesis 3 as history or mythology or some mix of the two, this is the story. This is our story. We're reading it thousands of years later. And what's this? What's the temptation? Like to eat the tree, you know, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Like the temptation is not to eat like bad fruit. What's the temptation? The temptation is to separate yourself from God and secondly, to redefine good and evil for yourself based on the voice in your own head, the desire in your own heart, rather than entrusting in the love and the wisdom of God's word to you. That is the temptation below all the temptations. And a lot of us, and it's a deception. Eve is deceived. Adam is deceived by a lie about, you could say, what will make them happy. Ignatius of Loyola, I quote him in the book, the founder of the Jesuit order, defined sin as unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. So people think of sin as like this breaking the speed limit or God making some arbitrary law about sexuality or something that doesn't make sense. No, sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. And that's, that's the serpent's lie. Like God doesn't want you to be happy. He actually is holding back from you. There's a good thing that God's saying no to, that if you will reject God's word to you, you will become a happier person. Mm -hmm. That could mm -hmm. be anything. You know, we could give legion examples out of our culture, some of which would fit into the culture wars, most of which would just be everyday life. And so the second major obstacle that in my pastoral experience is keeping people from going on the journey of spiritual formation into the image of Jesus and through it freedom and peace, and joy, and maturity, contentment, all of that, is people are living with these secular assumptions or lies about what is good and what is beautiful and what is true that cause them to look at Jesus' definition of the good and the beautiful and the true. And all of a sudden good news is starting to now sound like bad news. Right. Because we've been co-opted 
by the narratives of the world and we're living by the narratives of the world rather than the narratives of Jesus. So in the book, what I'm trying to do through that wireframe of the world, the flesh and the devil is expose in a hopefully a loving and gentle way, but a firm way, the lies that a lot of us have come to believe that are holding us back from following Jesus into maturity. Hey friends, just interrupting this conversation real quick to share about another one of our incredible partners, ZocDoc. Okay, so tell me if this has ever happened to you. You've got something going on and you realize you need to see a doctor. So you do some searching and find one that looks good and you wait on hold to book an appointment. You rearrange your schedule and when you finally go in, you find out the doctor doesn't even take your insurance. No bueno, how annoying. But I've got good news for you. There is a solution. Just download the free ZocDoc app It's the easiest way to find a great doctor and instantly book an appointment. With ZocDoc, you can search for local doctors who take your insurance, read verified patient reviews, and book an appointment, whether that's in person or as a video chat. Never wait on hold with a receptionist again. Whether you need a primary care physician, a dentist, a dermatologist, a psychiatrist, an eye doctor, or any other specialist, ZocDoc has got you covered. So go to ZocDoc.com slash That sounds fun. And download the ZocDoc app to sign up for free. Every month, millions of people use ZocDoc. And your girl Annie is one of them. It's my go-to whenever I need to find a doctor. Y'all, I cannot get over how much easier ZocDoc makes it to find a doctor. How have we not been using this sooner? ZocDoc makes healthcare easy. And now is the time to prioritize your health. So go to ZocDoc.com slash that sounds fun and download the ZocDoc app to sign up for free and book a top rated doctor. Many are available as soon as today. That's ZocDoc.com slash that sounds fun. And now back to our conversation with John Mark. Here's one of my thoughts when I finished reading the book, John Mark. I thought on a Tuesday... How do I know the difference when it's the devil, the world, or flesh that's lying to me? Or how do I know what to battle? Well, what I do is I just follow ins- influencers on Instagram, and I just believe <laughs> what they say I should believe. You just open your phone as soon as you wake up. You don't even get out of bed. You just open your phone and get started. I know. Okay, I get out of bed. I open my phone. I pull up Annie Downs first. <laughs> IG story. So it's it's just really fresh. And I think, what... <laughs> I'm kidding. You're really wise. You have lots of great Listen, John, John Tyson already exposed y'all and said that y'all's whole group doesn't look at your phone for two hours after you wake up. So we already know you're lying to us. Yep. That, that's true. Uh, that's, that's very true. All the, all, the, all the rumors are true. We have a rule of life we live by. Part of me wants to try to give you a really sophisticated answer that will impress you. But um, let me just give you an honest answer. You read scripture you pray, you daily die to your flesh, and you live in community. And through scripture and Christian tradition, prayer, that is a kind of prayer where you are letting go of self-will and community and discernment, you together discern the will of God with a lot of humility, knowing that we're not inerrant, we get it wrong. There are areas where scripture and church tradition and prayer and community are all crystal clear. You know, like there are lots of areas we don't need to pray about. Should I have an affair? Don't don't need to pray about that one. Don't need to ask my therapist if I should be true to myself. You know, um, that the God is the will of God is plain. 
you know, what do I do in this next season of my life or whatever? Like th- those are much, much more tricky. And so, yeah, I mean, the spirit of God will never contradict the word of God in scripture. And um, when you actually pray, not when you do Christian mindfulness or whatever, which I'm actually all for, but when you actually pray to the Father and the Son and the Spirit, you will feel the undercurrent of the Spirit moving you toward um, surrender and moving you to death to self, which is a beautiful feeling. It's a death feeling, but a good, it's a freedom feeling. And community, you have to be careful because lots of Christian community will actually draw you down, not draw you up, will... We'll, you know, we'll call you down, not call you up into holiness. So what kind of Christian community you discern with is very important because there can be people that claim to be Christians but are just more of the echo chamber of the world in your mind and just reinforce your own delusional thinking because they want to justify their own sin. And if they justify your sin, then they can justify their sin. So, you know, uh, that's not, I mean, that in a cynical way, just in an honest way. So you really need a Christian community that that are that are devoted to Jesus and the New Testament and will call you up into holiness into greater levels of maturity and self-giving love. But yeah, it's the honest answer. And you just get up in the morning, don't look at your phone, read your Bible and pray, die to self and have some great Christian friends that call you up into holiness and make decisions with them, you know, That's and beautiful. pay attention to the best. We have 2000 years of Christian tradition. Um, there's a bunch of things we don't have a Christian, you know, like, vaccines and masks. Well, the Christian tradition isn't really helpful on that one. But there's, you know, because we haven't been here before. Um, in the past, we just all died and suffered right. together. <laughs> so <laughs> vaccines and masks were not an option. So um, so we can't learn from the ancestors of the way of Jesus about that one. But most things we can, you know. So I had a friend recently. I, this is probably three weeks ago, John Mark. I was talking to a friend about something I was praying for. And I was saying to her, I, I don't know if I'm supposed to like fight for this in prayer. Like, I can't tell if I'm supposed to like go after yeah. this or just yes, let it be. I know that feeling. Yeah. And she said, who told you this wasn't going to be work? And I was like, oh, oh, I just thought, oh, okay. And she was like, she started kind of challenging me and how I prayed. And I'm not kidding you, John Mark. In 10 days, the entire situation shifted. Because one Christian friend of mine said, start battling. There is a battle here. You are not praying correctly. (laughs) She was like, you need to start. And so I have this hallway that I was just like, every morning when I make my tea, I know, I'm sorry, it's not coffee. I know. Tyson gets on. No, I bless you. That's better for your health. Well done. The coffee's horrible for you. So every morning when I'm doing my tea, I'm just pacing. And it 10 days, the whole thing shifted. That and I said to the Lord, this won't happen every time, but thank you that the first time you're giving me a quick response so that I see what happens. But I'm just actively seeing that our prayer lives are meant to shift the reality we live in. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh man, you're preaching my my language. What a great example that was because you likely already knew a biblical theology of prayer as conflict, as work, as intercession. You probably that wasn't I'm guessing that was not a new theology That's right. to you. That's but right. you needed a reminder from the spirit that came through your friend to move you to prayer. So I'm thinking about those three you know, um, have you had my friend AJ Swoboda on the show before? No, I want to so bad. Will you make us friends? Sure. He's, I mean, he's freaking brilliant. He's funny. You would, you would get on with him so well. 
And uh, he's a great writer. And he has, in one of his books, he writes about discernment, you know, meaning just how do we know God's will? And he calls it spiritual triangulation. And like, if you think of an excavator, there's three points. Point one is scripture. Point two is community. And point three is prayer. And so your story is a great example of spiritual triangulation. You know what I mean? Scripture, community, this, this word coming to you through your friend and prayer. And those three things together, it's like we triangulate God's will for our life. And that's what, I mean, that's what I was getting when I was reading Live No Lies is going like, oh, even the lie the enemy was feeding was like, hey, sit back, sit back. And so my friend had to say, when in scripture, I mean, even we were talking about Jacob, we were talking about um, in the New Testament when, uh, when Jesus tells the story of the persistent widow and he says, this is why you should pray and never give up. She just kept taking me back to going like, why would you, why would you give up? What, what, whoever told you this wouldn't be work in prayer? And so I, I bring this to you to say, probably some of it was my flesh wanting to be lazy. Probably some of it was my existing in a world that says everything should be microwaved and this was not being microwaved. And part of it is the enemy not wanting me to advance the kingdom of God on this planet. So setting that lie in your mind, like it should be easy, you know, which, which is a great example because, you know, if you read the temptation narrative in Matthew 4 with Jesus in the desert with Satan, the temptations are these really subtle things. I mean, turn stones to bread. Last right. time I chatted, turning stones to bread was not sinful. Right, right. You know, like there's not like a command in Ephesians. Like if you ever get really strong in the spirit of God, make sure you never turn a rock <laughs> into a sourdough <laughs> loaf of bread. Don't you think about it. <laughs> right. Like, so what's the temptation? I mean, that's a bizarre one, you know, the, the, and the temptation was not, actually to turn a stone into bread, it was to take, it was to be, go the way of Zeus, not the way of Jesus. It was to, ah. as my theology professor said, for Jesus to take up his God powers and to try to accomplish God's end, the kingdom, through the world's means, power, dramatic, control, impressing people, celebrity, as opposed to the way of Jesus, which is the way of suffering, sacrificial love. So that's a subtle temptation. And, you know, we often can spot the enemy's temptation coming to us, you know, when it's something blatant, but we'll often miss it when it's something benign. Yes, that's, I mean, that is the exact teaching around my most recent experience. Yes. So, okay, John Mark, for our people listening, they want a prayer life that is advances the kingdom. So what do we do today? What's the prayer life move today that advances the kingdom? I love what you just said, and I'm, I'm discovering this in my own life. Two thoughts. One is um, I'm discovering the power of what ancient Christians called synergy, which is a great word, of kind of partnership with the Spirit of God where we work in tandem with God. It's almost like surfing a wave or sailing in a boat, you know, where there's effort on our part, but really we're following the move of the Spirit. So synergy, we work, God works. God works, we work. And 
I love that kind of prayer when you feel that the Spirit has put a specific prayer in your heart. It's almost like God has impregnated you with this dream or this vision or this desire. And now through prayer, you are laboring to kind of birth it or maybe a more theological metaphor would be midwife it with God into reality. You know, so I've been thinking a lot about that line as I'm praying now about kind of my next chapter of life. I've been thinking about that line in Thessalonians where Paul writes, may God bring to fruition your every deed prompted by faith and your every desire for goodness. Oh, that's beautiful. Like, oh, wow. Like a deed prompted by faith, a desire for goodness. So there's lots of good things that we that should happen in the world. But sometimes there's a specific burden on our heart of a specific good thing that we feel a strong, strong desire to happen in the world. And we want to be a part of and we feel we might even be in some small way not the solution to that problem, but make a contribution in some healing way toward it. That could be like, are, are, do you do you follow like Ignatian spirituality at all? No worries if you don't at all. But have through you, you, like the stuff you teach us, yes. Yeah. Okay. That stuff. So does Saint Teresa count? Uh, she was actually a Carmelite, oh. but she's genius. She's amazing. Yeah, and I love. <laughs> I her. mean, so close. Okay, keep going. Keep close. Going. So for those of you that are new to it. Um, Gosh, there's a, there's a little paperback you can read in in 30 or 45 minutes called, I think it's called What is Ignatian Spirituality? It has like a spiral picture on the front. It's a great little overview. But one key idea to Ignatian spirituality that actually ties in a lot to my book, though I didn't get to put this into the book, is that, you know, the heart is this mixed bag of desire. And I write about this a lot in the book, you know, where to, to follow your heart is just hopelessly unhelpful advice because... My heart is, it's like, a, okay, this is such a, not a cool urban analogy, but did you see the, the, um, the Pirates of the Caribbean movie where, uh, where Jack Sparrow has the broken compass? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? And it's like, isn't it, as I remember the movie, it's like the compass is supposed to point to what he most deeply desires, but it's like wigging out and it goes right and left and it goes in all these different directions. And, and the whole point of the movie, and this is, this is like such a good picture of a, of a Christian theology of desire is that he doesn't actually know what he most deeply wants. Is it money? Is it fame? Is it freedom? Is it this person? Is it, you know, and it's just this compass. He it keeps looking down at the compass and it's like pointing and it's like pointing right. And then he goes right and then it points left and then it goes back. And then he, he's just like zigzagging around. It's chaotic. That's basically the postmodern world right now. Yeah. It's how so many yeah. people are living. Follow your heart. They look at the compass of their heart and it's wigging out or it's going right and they go right. And then it's a disaster or it's going, and then it's, and so like that, that's often like this, this chaotic kind of jumbled bag of desire at both a humorous level and at a very serious level. And um, part of prayer, Ignatius would say, is what he and many other Christians have called discernment. Or they actually, this is not, this word has lost its positive meaning. They actually use the word discrimination in a positive sense discriminating between these different desires, just, just meaning separating one from the other and the good from the bad, and um, discerning how is God coming to me and realizing that our heart is this mixed bag of the desires of what the New Testament call our flesh, which I write a whole section about in the book, what that is and how to, a theology of it, a practice of it, 
And then below that, the desires of the spirit. And what Ignatius would say is that once you get below the flesh level, I have this line in the book um, that, I, that is a ripoff of my theology professor. Thank you, Dr. Gary Bashirs. that our <laughs> strongest desires are not always our deepest desires. So in, in a moment of temptation, my strongest desire that I feel in my body might be, forgive this crass analogy, but to lust and objectify a woman walking past me on the street. Or it might be to gossip about another pastor when I'm with another pastor to somehow bolster up my ego and make myself feel better. Or it might be to buy another thing that I don't need. Or it might be to have another glass of wine when I should be done. That might be the strongest desire that I feel in my body. But that sure as heck is not the deepest desire in my heart. When I'm actually like rested and on Sabbath or I'm quiet with myself and I'm before God, the deepest desire of my heart is not to be a lustful person and use some other person's you know, body for like, oh my gosh, no. My, it's to be free of that, to be faithful to my wife, to delight in her, to be, find my wholeness in God himself. And you know, like, those are my deep, it's to be content with what I have and generous, not to buy another thing. It's to speak well of other people and be a man of honor and, and have my identity in Christ, not in where I fall in the hierarchy of pastor morality or whatever, not to gossip about other people. My deepest desires are, they're just below those kind of flesh level, raging kind of storm on the surface of the ocean desires. And so Ignatius would say, if you, can, if you can get through prayer and discernment and community and scripture down kind of below the storm on the surface of the ocean to the deep desires in your heart, those desires are often the spirit of God desiring through your desire. Wow. Yeah. So that's what Paul's writing about. And that's the truth to follow your heart, which overall is terrible advice. But if you nuance the heck out of it through a Christian worldview, then eh, it's okay advice, you know? Right, right, right. Um, but there are, there are desires way down there in the subterranean kind of part of your soul that are actually the spirit of God desiring through your desires. So I think that's what Paul's writing about when he says, may God bring to fruition your, your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. So about those desires for goodness are actually put, in, put into your heart and mind by the Spirit of God himself. So I think in prayer, when we can tap into, it's not wrong to pray for just good things in the world, you know? Um, God may, you know, and this, we're, we're praying for Afghanistan right now and against the Taliban. And, you know, these are just things that we need to give prayer to. Um, but there is a power when a synergy when the spirit of God is wanting to pray something through you. And it's like he's impregnated you with this desire. And now through your prayer, through your work, through your life, through your faith and risk and obedience, now we get to labor with God to bring this thing to birth in the world. That's a powerful way to pray. To me, that is one of the ways we fight against the lies, right? It's just if we're if we're more actively praying for the things God is birthing with us and through us, the lies just don't kind of have the opportunity. Yeah, and I, well, and I think a lot of it is just that discernment thing, you know, because a lot of lies they're not just they're narratives in our head, but they're also desires in our heart, and those two things go together. Um, you know, there's all this neuro, new neuroscience 
that basically says at a, at a neurobiological level, the difference between a thought and an emotion is basically non-existent. <laughs> and um, so, you know, this whole concept that. now of pre-verbal thought and, you know, yeah, exactly. So all, all sorts of rabbit trails there. Point being, you know, some of the enemy's lies come to us as desires in our own heart that are like the, the feeling base for some kind of narrative that we've bought into. And so that process of discernment, this is where all the spiritual disciplines that you and I like love to talk about, you know, Sabbath and silence and prayer and contemplative prayer are just crucial because they allow your soul, right? I mean, our soul are, is constantly being programmed by the internet, you know, and by the narrative right. of the world and by the city we live in and the people we're around. And so when we get away, when we unplug from all of those inputs, both literally by getting out away from our phone and our internet and going somewhere quiet and, you know, rest up with all of that. And metaphorically, just when we unplug from that and we just set our heart before God, before scripture, then often these, these lies that we've come to believe, they, they can kind of float to the surface of our heart and we can get a little bit more kind of objective, you know, perspective on them. And we can start to realize, oh, oh, maybe I've just been programmed by this ideology or programmed or or somebody has been actually manipulating my fear through this other narrative or thing or whatever. And like this stuff, and it's not, it's not like the formula. It's not like you go do this and three minutes later, you're like, oh, these three things are lies. And this is the truth. <laughs> you know, most of humanity is a lot more, I just put on radio voice. I don't know why, but uh, it's a lot more complex than that. But I think these practices, they enable us to get clarity around God, but they also enable us to get clarity around our own soul. And those two things really go together. Hey friends, just interrupting this conversation real quick to share about another one of our incredible partners, Pros. Several of you kind souls have recently reached out to me saying that you can tell a difference in my hair. Well, I can tell you exactly what's causing that difference. It's Pros. Pros is the world's most personalized hair care. They combine natural ingredients in innovative ways, giving you clean hair care and impeccable results. Pros isn't offering us the same old mass solutions we can find just anywhere. Instead, their formulas offer new answers to our individual hair needs. Here's how it's working for me. First, I took their online quiz. It's really quick. Just answering a few simple questions about my life and my concerns about my hair. By analyzing over 85 personal factors, Pros determines a unique blend of ingredients to treat your exact concerns. So then they sent me a personalized formula of both shampoo and conditioner from Pros, and it's been absolutely amazing for my hair. It's making it fuller and so shiny and smooth. And as an added bonus, they smell awesome. And with Pros, it's not just a one and done personalization. They're always looking to provide quality and further personalization with their review and refine feature. It lets you tweak formulas for any reason, like if you have a change of a dress or you get your hair colored or your diet changes. Pros is an industry leader in clean and responsible beauty. All their ingredients are sustainably sourced, ethically gathered, and cruelty-free. They're also the first custom beauty brand to go carbon neutral. I love that so much. And they stand by their products. So if you're not 100% positive Pros is the best hair care you've had, they will take the products back, no questions asked. Pros is the healthy hair regimen with your name all over it. So take your free in-depth hair quiz and get 15% off your first order today. So go to pros.com slash that sounds fun. 
That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash that sounds fun for your free in-depth hair quiz and 15% off. Pros has given over 1 million consultations with their in-depth hair quiz. And now back to our conversation with John Mark. So I've gotten some questions. We have people who submit questions uh, through our AFD Week in Review, and people have been asking questions about the practice of fasting. Beautiful. I know. I think that's great. I, I, You and I talk about fasting a lot. That's incredible that people are asking questions about that. I know. I think it's rad. So what's the what's the big overview? Can you do a... I mean, I whenever people ask us, I send them to your teaching on fasting because it, oh, cool. you know, it massively impacted my life and and change some big things for me. But can you do kind of an overview of importance of fasting and what it, is it always food? Can it be other things? Like what is the discipline of fasting? Yeah. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about its history. So prior to very recently, fasting was considered basically one of the core practices or spiritual disciplines for following Jesus. So most people don't even realize this, but for example, for over a thousand years, if you were a Christian, you would fast every Wednesday and every Friday until sundown. That was just like, it was like going to church in the South, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's just like, yeah. it's just what you did. It's just what you did. And yeah. uh, Lent, um, for those of you that follow the church calendar, a lot of people don't realize that originally Lent was similar to Ramadan in that it was a 40-day fast until sundown. You would fast, and you know, most Catholics now, it's like you don't eat meat on Fridays or something like that. But in the original version, you would actually fast until sundown for 40 days in the build up to Easter. So my point, when Jesus teaches on spiritual disciplines, he only names three in the Sermon on the Mount, one of which is fasting. And he says, when you fast, not if you fast. So fasting was, my point there is that fasting was basically an assumption about following Jesus, kind of like church attendance was until pretty recently in America for Christians. Uh, that's been lost in very recent years and decades, in particular in the Western church. Part of that is because the West is not to nerd out on philosophy, but to nerd out on philosophy is so deeply shaped by, you know, Rene Descartes, whose famous line, you know, I think therefore I am. And um, they call that Cartesian, as in Rene Descartes, Cartesian kind of worldview which is our whole educational system is built around this. Much of the church is built around this worldview. And it's this kind of idea that you are, um, you're kind of a brain on legs, you know, that you're just this thinking thing is what the enlightenment thinkers kind of called us. And it's just not true. And what that translates into is it's very hard for Western Christians. And I mean, Western in the broadest sense, whether you're in Portland or Nashville or, you know, Huntsville, Alabama. It's very hard for Western Christians to conceive of a way that we grow and mature into the image of Jesus, not through our mind, but through our stomach. Mm-hmm. So if you, you know, if you ask, hey, how do I grow to be more mature in this, that, or the area or the other, you'd make perfect sense to you if I was like, okay, read these three books, listen to this podcast series by Annie Downs, uh, go listen to this sermon series by John Tyson and memorize these nine scriptures. Be like, great, got it, Mm -hmm. through my mind. Done. But if I just said, okay, try not eating every Wednesday, people would be like, what? Because we can't conceive of a way that is getting at our spiritual formation, not through our prefrontal cortex, not through our brain, but through our stomach. Like we, we can't 
conceive of it, which is tragic because Christian theology is is what you know what one beautiful theologian called the theology of the body. It's an imbo- uh, theologians call it embodied spirituality. Your body, contrary to all the theology that I grew up with, is a part of who you are. It's part of your soul. Like we could nerd out on the theology here. I loved that movie Soul, the Pixar movie, which was made by a Christian, by the way, or directly written by one. Love that movie. It was one of my favorite movies of the year. I even cried. But that image of the soul as this kind of immaterial, invisible part that's the real you that when your body dies kind of goes... That's like the Western Platonic view of the soul. It's not a biblical view of the soul. And that doesn't mean you don't have some part of you that's immaterial and invisible and will live on in some place at death. It just means that's not what your soul is. In biblical theology, your soul is a way of saying your whole person. It's a way of saying all of you, the integrating center, including your body, Um, You know, your mind is not even at a scientific level. Your mind and your body are not really separate things. Um, They're they're one entity, you know. So all that to say, whatever our discipleship to Jesus is, it must be an embodied spirituality. It must involve our body, not just our mind. That's one of the many reasons I call them practices. I don't call them spiritual disciplines because people hear spiritual and they think, well, unembodied. Most of the spiritual disciplines are things you do with your body. You know, going to church and singing is something you do with your body. Fasting is something you do with your body. The Lord's Supper is something you do with your body. So fasting is this embodied spiritual discipline where you are literally giving the deepest part of your body over to God. And there are basic three, as I can understand it, um, and this is not like, test this against a theologian. There are three basic reasons or uh, motivations that you fast as a follower of Jesus. One is to feed your spirit and starve your flesh. Flesh not meaning your body, but meaning this broken part of your body, this animal primal part of you. Which you talk about a lot in the book, so people can know you dig into that a lot in that section. Yep. Two is to amplify your prayers. And three is to stand in solidarity with the poor and to share that money, both to understand what it feels like to be poor and to share the money that you would have spent on food with those who don't have it. So those are the three, as I see, if you had to put the biblical theology of why do you fast into categories, those three reasons. You want to grow the spirit, kind of feed the spirit because you're feeding on the energy of God and starve your flesh, not your body, which is not bad, your flesh, this broken primal appetite kind of animal in you. And you want to amplify your prayer life. You know what I mean? You want to somehow like put a little nitro into that prayer, you know? And It works too. It is no joke. It does. It does. Not in a transactional way, but it really does amplify the power in your prayer. So that's basic, you know? And one of the things I love about fasting – I think, I think it was Willard who had this the first time I read this insight. But fasting is a way to train yourself to not get what you want and still be happy. So that when someone else doesn't give you what you want, or life doesn't give you what you want, or COVID doesn't give you what you want, or God doesn't give you what you want, you can still be happy. So whenever somebody, you know, I saw this a lot in COVID where a lot of Christians freaked out because of the disruption of this pandemic. And they found often spiritual language to cover up 
their anxiety and anger. And really what they were doing is they were grieving. And they were trying to put it into this like, well, we should have more faith. We need to whatever. But, well, maybe. But maybe you're just grieving because you just realize that you're not in control of your life and all of your plans went out and all these things you wanted so badly aren't happening. And this desire that was in you just got crushed and you don't have any good reason for it. There's no silver lining. It just sucks. And you're just really sad and angry about it because anybody would be sad and angry about it. Welcome to being human. And, but often you can tell when people, it's like the child, you know, the spoiled, the, the stereotype of a spoiled child who doesn't get what they want, so they scream. All of us have that little inner child in us at some level. Yes. And so fasting is a great way to regularly train ourselves. John Tyson and I and our friends, all of us, part of our rule of life is one day a week on the same day, we all fast. And it's such a gift because it's training me to be happy without what I want, which is breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you know? Yes. And I'm yes. training myself, hey, I can actually be in a good mood today. I can be joyful today. I can be content today. Um, I don't need this thing that my body wants to be happy and at peace. And so then when all of a sudden I don't get the book sales I want or I don't get the answer to the request I want or I don't get this thing that I want or I don't get this, this circumstance doesn't work out the way I want it to, or my child doesn't perform in the way that I want him to at school or whatever, I'm okay. Because I don't need, I'm, I'm, I'm increasingly free of my desire. And that's the, one of the great lies of Western culture is that the way to sate desire is by always fulfilling it. And people yes. don't realize desire is infinite because we were made by God, made for God, made to run on God, and nothing less than God will ever satisfy you. So if you try to, to sate your desire by fulfilling your desire, you will end up an addict, not a satisfied person. You will end up giving yourself over to the dopamine hit over and over and over again. And you will chase a finite thing like sex or romance or money or career or experience or travel or you feel or church or you fill in the blank down an infinite road and you will end up in slavery to addiction, not in freedom in God. And so at some point, our spiritual formation must stand against our desire in order to actually satisfy our desire in God. Mm, that's good. It is a strengthening. It's, it's what we've been talking about this whole episode is a strengthening of another muscle spiritually too fast. Yeah. It matters deeply. It is. I say a lot to people. It is my favorite and my least favorite discipline. I have never oh, yeah. seen... <laughs> It's not, it's not my favorite. It's just my least favorite. I'm but. hungry four <laughs> minutes after I decide to fast. I mean, it is immediate. And the funny thing is, when I'm not fasting, if I like accidentally skip a meal because I'm busy, I don't even think about it. But on days that right. I'm fasting, it's like 10 minutes into my morning coffee, I feel a stomach grumble. That's it. And every time, I mean, I, the, I think someone taught me this in college, but every time my stomach growls, I will say out loud, more than I want food, I want you. More than I want food. Yeah. I want, I, it, because I have to say it out loud, otherwise the desire in me gets louder than what I actually desire. And so you're saying that you use those hunger pains almost as like a little trigger in a positive sense to like bring you back to God, bring you back to yes. prayer, bring you back yeah. to why you're fasting God, because I want you more than I want food. Yeah, so, and it is either more than I want food, I want you, God, or more than I want food today, I want you to change this situation. 
More than I want food today, I want you to move. More than I want food today, I want to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I want freedom from, yes. So Annie, what advice do you have to people that are, are that are new to fasting based on your own journey? And obviously you've thought through this real thoroughly, like for somebody who has no paradigm for fasting, or if they do, like I had a little bit of a paradigm growing up. Like I remember my parents used to fast whenever they were making a major decision, like do we move or something like that. They'd like fast for a, a you know a day or something like that. But it, I had no paradigm for like we fast every Wednesday, and you know I had no paradigm for that. What, what advice do you have to somebody who's I think as most Western Christians are totally new to it. To me, the thing I want to say, because I want it to be easy, is say, skip a meal, pick a meal. And instead of, but the truth is we accidentally miss meals all the time. We never miss a whole day of food on accident. And so what I, what I actually would say to someone listening is, if you want to see if fasting matters and if fasting moves God's heart, do it for a whole day. Miss breakfast, lunch, and dinner and feel hungry all day and pray every time your stomach pangs and pay attention. I mean, your eyes have to be open to the spiritual that day. You have to be saying to God, make me attentive to whatever you might be saying or doing today. Because I often say to the Lord on seasons that I'm fasting, you have to give me your eyes to pay attention because all my all my other senses are heightened anyway. My emotions are heightened when I'm not eating. Everything is heightened when I'm fasting. And therefore, God, I need you to heighten my spiritual sensitivity because I need to notice if there's someone in the grocery store that is supposed to catch my attention. I shouldn't be in a grocery store if I'm fasting, but you know what I mean? Like I need to be paying <laughs> more like, attention. Wow. You you are just a glutton for punishment right there. And that is the <laughs> I right walk, metaphor. I walk and pray in grocery right stores. <laughs> <laughs> I, I fast on the day I do my grocery shopping. That's right. Watch me, God. So that's what I would tell people to do is do a whole day. Yeah. That the heightened sensitivity. I will often both write my sermons and deliver my sermons, and I'll fast on those days often because there's a power and weakness, and there is an increased sensitivity. My mind is sharper. My spirit is more in tune. You know, um, I don't feel as good, but there is some kind of a power that you're tapping into beyond yourself. That's not, and it's not just the power of intermittent fasting. It's the power of the spirit. At Crosspoint, we did a little test between all of us that teach on the team did a fast before the last time we taught and just kind of had this conversation about like how different was it that we were fasting before we taught versus a normal Sunday. Wow. Yeah. I'm telling you, you know my personality. You think I'm lit yes. teaching without fat when I'm eating? You should see me teaching when I'm fasting. Oh, I mean, I like, come on. I am unstoppable when I'm hungry and I'm teaching. I mean, it is like, I don't hold back anything, you know, because I'm like, what do we have to lose? I'm already starving. (laughs) (laughs) So I just think it is, I have found it to be such a powerful discipline. And for those listening, if that sounds too overwhelming, you know, the traditional, like the early church fast where they'd fast every Wednesday and Friday was just till sundown. So that would just mean, you know, have dinner one night, but make sure you just have an earlier dinner. And then just wake up the next morning and all that time that you would have spent eating and prepping food, just pray and then just wait till the sun goes down and then have have a late dinner, you know? Yeah, this is a great time of year to start that because the days are getting shorter. So the sundown is coming at 4.30, everybody. 
Don't do it in July. Do it in November. <laughs> exactly. It's much easier to start. Exactly so this is right. this is the right time to start. That's right. Oh, goodness. Um, John Mark, for I have two more questions for you, and then we'll be done. For our friends listening who love you as I do, how can we pray for you walking into this book launch and walking into this sabbatical? What What do you want? I don't even want to know what you need. I want to know what you want. What do you want us to pray for God to give you? Oh, you're so kind. Um, you know, I'd love just to pray for peace just as I go through this next month of kind of book launch and some travel and conversations. Um, you know, this book is literally a book about fighting Satan. So it's already come at a cost to my soul to write it. And it's hard to measure spiritual opposition, you know, because um, uh, it's, it's hard to quantify but a man, do I feel it? So I would just love. I was about to say it's hard to measure a wave in the ocean, but you know when you get knocked over by it. Yeah, you, exactly. And then for our sabbatical, yeah, I mean, just all the things you would intuit, just deep healing. Last year and a half, our church was beautiful through it, but it was so hard to pastor through COVID nineteen and all the riots in Portland and all the political stuff and all the chaos, you know. So we're we're good. We're grateful, but we're wiped, you know? And, um, so just praying for deep rest and healing even so that we can really come back and serve humbly, but faithful, faithfully for a long time. I would love to be, I look at some of my heroes, Tim Keller and some of these others who are, you know, he's, he's, he's ill, he has cancer, but who are, you know, 70 or something and are just still incredibly helpful. And um, I'm no Tim Keller, but I, I would love to be 70 and still be helpful. That's a long time from now still for me. We're entering the second half. This is it. I know. It feels great. I love it. It's, it's a good feeling. But it's a different, you know, Rollheiser, who's written better than anybody about first, second half of life, talks about how, you know, first you're trying to, like, just get your life together. Then the second half, you're trying to give your life away. And at first, it's about like channeling your energies. And then in the second half, it's about maintaining your energies, <laughs> you know. Um, so, yeah, there's just a different, you know, spent the last 18 years really working hard to build something. And now I want to rest and I just want to come back and hopefully make my best contribution, which is what all of us want to do. If your best is yet to come, we are lucky to be on the planet at the same time as you, my friend. So. You've done good work for us already. Oh, same to you, Annie. I feel like we should do this once a month just so I can hang out with you. You know. Oh, but I listen. I don't think I haven't been I over here. You, you sometime. These are such one-sided conversations. I want. We want. I want to flip the tables on you. Maybe when I, your next book comes out or something. Like, done. Let me. I just. I just don't have a, a podcast. I don't have some best-selling podcast. To... <laughs> best-selling. <laughs> best yeah, you, you would. And he's like, uh, it's it's free. Just to clarify, it's free, man. I offer everybody their money-back guarantee for every episode. Um, uh, hey, the last question you always ask because the show is called "That Sounds Fun." John Mark Comer, tell me what sounds fun to you. Oh, what sounds fun to me? Uh, I haven't seen a movie in forever in a movie theater, and in a couple weeks, I'm taking the first week of my sabbatical. I am doing, to kick it off, an eight-day Primal Path road trip with my 13-year-old second boy, Moses. We're yeah. going to camp down Highway 1, because you can do that in California in October. And yeah. we're going to end in San Francisco, where I grew up, 
and we're going to go. They have the best movie theater in the world. It's called the Alamo. It's this like indie converted old theater, incredible, like organic sriracha popcorn, all the things. Yeah. And we're going to see we're going to see Dune. My son wants to be movie director and Dune is like our favorite novel. So we're going to go see the movie Dune. So that sounds fun to me. Going to see a movie with my son in San Francisco on my sabbatical from one of my favorite books. That sounds fun. That's high level, dude. That's a really good one. That's a great answer. You're like, I was just thinking like, is there like a, a nut bar that you like right now or something? But no. No, that's a great answer. You nailed it. Um, thanks for doing the show, Mark. I can't wait for people to read Live No Lies. I'm, I'm so thankful. Thanks, Annie. Oh, you guys, don't you love him? His, what sounds fun to him sounds so fun. What a great answer and what a great conversation. I'm just so, so grateful. Again, we'll link it in the show notes, but you can go back and listen to John Mark teaching about fasting at Bridgetown, particularly in, I think it's January of 2018, but it's very easy to Google and find, and it was a really helpful series for me. And be sure you pick up a copy of Live No Lies and follow John Mark. Tell him thanks so much for being on the show. I'm telling you, that book is so good, y'all. It is so good. If you need anything else from me, you know I'm embarrassingly easy to find. Annie F. Downs on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the places you may need me. That's how you can find me. And I think that's it for me today, friends. Go out or stay home and do something that sounds fun to you, and I will do the same. Have a great couple of days, and we'll see you back here on Wednesday with the hilarious and wise and so lovely Kate Fuller. See you guys next.